From 1984 through 1991, thousands of fires were intentionally set from Southern California to the Central Coast to the Central Valley and countless places in between. Homes, businesses, dry brush, nothing was off limits. The arsonist left virtually nothing behind in the way of evidence that could ever be traced back to him for years. The damage and destruction soared into the millions, countless millions, and four innocent lives were lost. The arsonist was brazen. He set fires with impunity, and he managed to get away with it for a long time until he finally slipped up and left behind a clue that would eventually lead investigators right to him. It was then that it became clear why this pyromaniac was able to set fire after fire after fire while managing to elude capture. He was one of them, often investigating the very fires that he was setting, busting arsonists while moonlighting as one. Driven by a desire for attention, to be a hero, to be the very best at arson investigation, to garner recognition for his dedication to his job, while he steadily rose through the ranks. But there was also an insatiable desire to feed his own sadomasochistic sexual urges, which for him was to watch things burn. It took investigators years to catch on to him. And even when he did come up as a possible suspect, nobody who knew him or worked with him were even willing to entertain the possibility that he was the arsonist that they sought. This only emboldened him even more and allowed for the devastation and destruction to continue for much longer than it should have. Even years later, there are still many who refuse to believe that he was responsible. Join me as I tell this story of the most prolific serial arsonist the state of California, possibly the entire country, had ever seen. You are listening to California Dreaming, and this is the tale of the Firestarter. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is a completely independent, ad-free, one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can help support. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the platforms that you listen to your shows on. That helps give us more visibility and pushes us up the charts where new listeners can find us. You can also recommend us in true crime podcast fan groups on Facebook or other social media platforms. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. TikTok, however, is mostly about my dogs, so be forewarned. And you could also subscribe to our Patreon, where you will be able to binge dozens of exclusive, full-length episodes of this show. This week, I would like to thank Nancy P., Angela D., Dean S., Vicki H., Mimi C., Rebecca C., Chuck Peggy M, Elizabeth, Sarah B, Jennifer H, and Sarah E for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge to the next tier, or opting in on the annual subscription. I'd also like to thank Diane C, who has been having issues with Patreon like many of us have, and going through the trouble of rejoining this week. And I'd also like to thank Michael M for making a one-time donation to the show through PayPal. And if you would like to do that also, you can use our email, californiapod at gmail.com. 
All right, let's get going with the final part of this series on the former firefighter turned pyromaniac with the most punchable face in the world ever. In the last part, we left off with John Orr having been convicted of three arsons and sentenced to 30 years in prison. He would be eligible for parole after 10 years. So now John Orr needed to get ready for the fight of his life. He was going to be facing the possibility of being sentenced to death for the 1984 Ole's Home Store fire. He needed to get on the ball when it came to retaining another attorney. We know that he didn't like his last one, and I'm sure it goes without saying that the feeling was probably very mutual. He didn't want another conviction, especially if all of his appeals were denied and he went up for parole in 2002. I mentioned in part five that Orr's manuscript had been tossed out by the judge that was going to be presiding over his second trial. He basically said it was way too general and it could have been applied and interpreted in many different ways, which I don't really think is true because there are lots of specifics in the manuscript that were eerily similar to real-life arsons, and those cover letters to literary agents had some incriminating information in them as well. Because Orr was facing federal charges in two different districts, and there were so many layers to this case, I was a little bit unclear as to how all of this played out, but the manuscript had been entered into evidence at the federal trial in Fresno, and the jury had even asked to see it while they were deliberating. So the first matter of business for this next trial was for the prosecutors in Orr's case, and this next trial in Los Angeles was to get that manuscript back into evidence. And it was a pretty easy decision for the appellate court when they found that the lower court had, quote, abused its discretion in excluding this evidence. The manuscript and the letters are highly probative of modus operandi and thus the identity of the arsonist. So the decision was reversed. The manuscript would be admissible at trial. The task force continued working long hours getting ready for the next trial. They worked right through the holidays to the end of 1992 going into 1993. They wanted to make sure that all of the witnesses they intended to call to the stand were ready. This was going to be a case where Orr was being charged with eight counts of arson. Back when the grand jury was convened, prosecutors were looking for indictments for three counts of arson from the March 9, 1989 fires that occurred along the Central Coast during that time period that coincided with the training seminar in San Luis Obispo, California. Those arsons were all in the city of Atascadero, Three fires all in a row along the same street at Pacific Home Improvement, Cornet Variety Store, and Coast to Coast Hardware. The other five counts were arsons that took place in the Los Angeles area, the People's Department Store on December 10, 1990, Builder's Emporium in North Hollywood on December 14, 1990, DNM Yardage in Lawndale, Stats Floral Supplies in Lawndale, and Thrifty Drugstore in Redondo Beach all of which occurred on March 27, 1991. The benefit for both the prosecution and the defense is that they would have the transcripts from Orr's federal trial to help them decide how they were going to formulate their courtroom strategies. 
but to also learn from the mistakes that may have been made. There's also going to be a lot more media attention focused on this trial than the one in Fresno, because this was the area where Orr was such a prominent figure in the firefighting community. Wanda Orr, his wife, did not speak very much to the media. I mean, if you were married to that guy, would you want your face shown on TV for the world to see? Yeah, me neither. But she was continuing to support her husband in the background. Orr's new defense attorney was Peter Giannini. He was 45 years old and had been practicing law for approximately 20 years. He came highly recommended, but his fees were also high. $60,000 was his retainer. Wanda mortgaged their house in order to pay him. Right out of the gate, Giannini wanted Orr to plead guilty to the three 1989 Atascadero fires. None of those fires had any significant damage, so he was not going to have to pay any steep fines. Giannini was pretty blunt. Even if Orr was convicted on only one of those counts, it was going to be another 10 years tacked onto his existing sentence. If he pleaded guilty, it might not add on any extra time. But Orr, being the egotistical, arrogant prick that he is, wasn't having it. He did not throw down $60,000 for his attorney to broker him a plea deal. He was like, I paid you to defend me at trial, and I expect you to earn every single penny of it. As soon as Giannini uttered the word plea bargain, or jumped down his throat. Fuck that. He absolutely refused to take a plea. Giannini was trying to be realistic. He was like, dude, you are not going to win your appeals in Fresno. And that's what Orr was thinking. If he appealed his Fresno convictions and was successfully defended in his Los Angeles case, then he would be out of jail in no time, which of course is what he wanted. After all, he was denying any involvement in anything. If Orr pleaded guilty, he may not get any more time and he'd still be eligible for parole in 2002, but he had to admit to his guilt. Jeannie strongly advised him to take a deal. Orr did take some time to think about it, but it wasn't going to be a good look for him to plead guilty to this. He was adamant that he was innocent. But after thinking things over for a while, Orr decided maybe it was the best thing for him. There would be no added time to a sentence, and Wanda wouldn't be at risk of losing their home if they all went to trial. So eventually, surprisingly, Orr agreed. Even though he didn't commit these crimes, he'd say, even though he's a completely innocent man, even though he's as fugly as all get out, and that has nothing to do with this, he decided to take his attorney's advice and plead guilty in order to save his wife any further humiliation and to save her from losing the house on top of it. So... He's making himself to be like this hero for his wife by falling on the sword and pleading guilty. Whatever. Just a few days before Orr's trial was set to begin, Giannini called the prosecutor, Stefan Steen, wanted to discuss coming to terms on a plea deal. And Steen was pretty shocked because he didn't see that coming, knowing what he knows about John Orr. And darn it, he was ready to go to trial too. 
His whole life had been consumed with preparing for it for months and months. He had fought really long and hard to get that ruling on the manuscript overturned. Yet here goes Orr's attorney talking about a plea. The task force members were giddy with delight at the news that Orr and his attorney began floating the idea of a plea deal. All this time, Orr had been accusing every single one of them of being complicit in a government frame job. Now he wants to plead guilty? It was a very symbolic win for everyone who spent so many hours, days, weeks, and months investigating this asshat. When considering the plea, the prosecutors and the task force were keenly aware of the fact that if they won this conviction for the eight arsons, chances are that the judge was going to run whatever his sentence was going to be concurrently with his first sentence that he was currently serving, meaning that Orr wouldn't get any more time added on to his sentence necessarily, regardless of taking the plea or winning the case. So in essence, there was no real practical reason not to plead him out, so they decided to accept the offer from Orr's attorney with one caveat. They wanted Orr to plead guilty to the Central Fire arsons in 1989 and one of the Los Angeles area arsons from December of 1990 through March of 1991. They agreed, and Orr chose to plead guilty to the North Hollywood Fire at the Builders Emporium. Investigators had recovered an incendiary device there, and the damage amounted to less than $100. But what Orr's attorney didn't know was this particular guilty plea for that specific fire at Builder's Emporium, that was going to come back and bite John Orr on the ass later on. So on May 12, 1993, the district court judge accepted the plea deal and sentenced Orr to 96 months for each of the four counts, which is a total of 32 years. And that would be served concurrently. So essentially, that would mean no extra jail time for Orr just as his attorney had told him. He would still be paroled or considered for parole in 2002, and he'd only be 53 years old. John Orr was so confident that in 10 years' time, he would be granted parole. But I wonder if he ever realized that in order to be granted parole, he was going to have to express remorse and apologize, you know, stuff he's probably incapable of doing. I could just picture him standing there before the parole board with his arrogant indignancy, claiming, maintaining, insisting that he's innocent and his parole being denied because he is absolutely incapable of taking any responsibility for his crimes or having any insight when it came to all the havoc and destruction that he caused. The judge imposed his sentence. He had little to nothing to say to Orr, and Orr had nothing to say to the court either. I mean, why would he have anything to say? He claimed his plea was solely to spare his wife the financial burden of another trial. He couldn't exactly stand up there and make a statement like he did in his first trial, proclaiming he was an innocent man wrongly convicted when he just pleaded guilty. Everyone agreed that John Orr got a sweet deal. After his conviction, he was transferred to the federal prison on Terminal Island, which is located near the Long Beach and San Pedro harbors. 
While all of the details of the plea were being ironed out, Orr's attorney, Giannini, heard that the district attorney's office in Los Angeles had their prosecutor who specialized in arson cases named Michael Cabral looking into the College Hills fire. If you recall, there were about four dozen homes that were lost and approximately $50 million in damage back in June of 1990. And the prosecutor was also looking into the Ole's Home Center fire in South Pasadena from back in October of 1984. Those were the two biggest catastrophes that Orr was suspected of being responsible for. And Giannini wondered if they were going to charge him at the state level. He tried talking to his client about it, but Orr told him, don't sweat it. Let them do all the investigating that they want to do. There's nothing there. They're not going to find anything on me. Orr was pretty confident. Three years had already passed since the College Hills fires and nine years since the Ole's Home Center fires. And the Ole's fire had been ruled an accident. So John Orr wasn't even thinking about that being a charge that he would possibly be facing. Giannini wasn't quite as confident as Orr was, so he tried getting in touch with Cabral to try and find out if they were planning on charging Orr with those fires, but his calls were never returned. Looking back on this years later, Orr's attorney would say that if he had any idea what the district attorney was planning on doing, if he had thought that they were going to charge Orr with those fires, He would have added the stipulation for Orr to not be charged with any more arsons. But at the time, Orr wasn't concerned with it at all. Orr never said anything about it. He would never admit that there were probably hundreds, possibly more than a couple thousand fires that he was responsible for. So because Orr wasn't sweating it, Giannini decided not to concern himself with it either. As I stated a moment ago, the prosecutor, Michael Cabral, he was the arson specialist. He preferred trying arson cases over any others. In fact, he attended a car fire arson case that was hosted by John Orr himself. His own arson task force had been formed in early 1992, and their war room was located in the Los Angeles Halls of Justice, where the old courtroom and old county jail was located. It was a very tiny room, and the boxes and boxes of evidence that they had on John Orr took up most of it. According to Wamba's book, Fire Lover, Cabral's investigative team consisted of the following people. Sergeant Walt Sherrell, he was with the Sheriff's Arson and Explosives Unit. Deputy Rich Edwards, who was the one responsible for keeping track of Orr when the second tracking device was installed in Orr's car. Tom Campuzano, an arson investigator who had previously been on the Pillow Pyro Task Force, Bill Donnelly and Chris Loop, who were detectives with the Glendale Police Department, and Steve Patterson, that was the arson investigator in Burbank. He was the one who had contacted Orr for assistance with the Warner Brothers studio fire. They did need to work kind of quickly with the College Hills fires because the statute of limitations was looming. But Ole's, because of the four deaths, the statute of limitations did not apply. An additional problem for the latter was the fact that they needed to prove that the fire was not an accident, that it was, in fact, an arson. 
What's more is they were going to have to go back to the families of all those that perished in that fire and rip their wounds open all over again when they had thought this was long behind them. They had been under the impression that this was an accident. Millions of dollars had been paid out to them. Now, nine years after the fact, they were going to have to go back and tell those family members that their loved ones were murdered. Not an easy thing to have to do. But seeing John Orr imprisoned for the rest of his life was going to be so worth it. And for some, they would have loved to have seen him land on California's death row. Prosecutor Cabral was not pleased with the fact that John Orr had pleaded guilty to the Los Angeles area fires because if they had won a conviction, it would have been a tremendous help to his own case because he would have had all that trial transcript information to work with. But remember when I stated earlier that pleading guilty to the Builders Emporium fire would come back to bite or on the butt? Well, it was about to. Of the fires that they could have chosen to plead guilty to, the one that would have played the best right into the hands of the prosecutors was that fire for two reasons. The intact incendiary device recovered from the scene and the fact that Builders Emporium was Ole's Home Center's parent company. They were virtually identical stores. Cabral did know that it was going to take him and his task force quite some time to investigate Ole's. After so many years, the company was no longer around. It had been bought out and the company that bought Ole's out was out of business. They were going to have to track down the employees that worked at Ole's nine years earlier. So they were like, where do you even start? It also wasn't going to be easy to prove that the Ole's fire was not an accident. The Sheriff's Department arson investigator said that it was likely an electrical short that began in the attic, leading to the collapse of the roof. They had to somehow show that this was not an attic fire, but rather a fire that was started someplace on the sales floor and that some highly combustible materials had been ignited, which caused this fire to spread so fast that four people were not able to get out of the building safely. They also needed to take a look at all the fires that had plagued the Southland during that time that Orr was wreaking havoc, going back about a decade. After more than a year of looking into this, the task force came up with 78 retail stores in Southern California that they believed were intentionally set by John Orr. When it came to the brush fires, those numbered into the hundreds. Hundreds of brush fires all over Glendale Foothills, La Crescenta, Pasadena, portions of Los Angeles, all of which were in close proximity to the places where Orr had resided. Back during that time that these fires were being set, Task Force member Rich Edwards was so sure that he was going to be able to capture images of the arsonist because he kept coming back to the same places over and over again. So he had wanted to set up some cameras mounted high up in an effort to get some pictures of the guy. Well, it just so happened that while they were having the very first camera installed, who happened to show up as always? John Orr. They talked a little bit. He told Orr what he was doing. And after that, that area never had another fire again. There were other fires in other places in the canyon, 
but they were all places where Orr knew that no cameras had been installed. The task force was coming to realize just how prolific of an arsonist John Orr had become as they investigated the hundreds and hundreds, countless brush fires. In fact, by the time this investigation was in full swing, Orr had been in custody for a year and a half, and when they did the math, they had figured in that time span since then, there was a 90% drop-off when it came to brush fires. Since 1981, the Foothills area averaged 67 arsons per year. After Orr was arrested at the end of 91, the average dropped to one fire per year. The two sheriff's deputies who were members of the task force were assigned to interview everyone that John Orr worked with at the Glendale Fire Department, and it wasn't going to be easy. The firefighters, like police, are a brotherhood. Not all of them were going to be so quick to flip on Orr. There were some who were willing to talk and give whatever useful information that they had, and then there were others who refused to believe that Orr had anything to do with the crimes that he was sitting in jail convicted of. And it wasn't like at the time the firefighters were all that fond of cops anyway. At least that's what's been insinuated about the two departments. So they did not particularly like law enforcement coming around their fire department asking questions about their fellow firefighter. One of the fire captains insisted that he knew John Orr and he is not this person, this serial arsonist that they were accusing him of being. And even if he did set that fire that killed those four innocent people, it didn't necessarily mean that John Orr deserved to be in jail. What the fuck does that mean? Well, it means that John Orr needs to be given professional help. And if he ever did, this particular fire captain said he would have no problem working shoulder to shoulder with Orr once again. And if you ask me, this particular fire captain needed to have some professional help for himself because even considering working with John Orr again, a guy like that is just crazy in and of itself. As the investigation into the fires wore on, members of the task force began to think that it was possible Orr was setting fires so his department wasn't going to lose any funding. In fact, while Orr was out doing his arson thing, Glendale was given an even larger budget and all the firefighters were getting paid more. When there was a time when the city had some of the lowest salaries for its fire department in the nation. They also discovered that when Orr was working on getting residents with dry brush overgrown around their houses to clear all that stuff out, if they refused to comply, then Orr may very well have set a brush fire near their house in order to teach them a lesson. And if arson and murder and being an all-around piece of shit weren't already bad enough, the task force uncovered evidence that while Orr served as treasurer for Glendale's Fire Investigators Regional Strike Team, or FIRST for short, I mentioned this uh, a couple episodes back, they discovered that Orr had been embezzling money from the team's funds and he had opened a credit card for FIRST and was using it to purchase gift certificates. All in all, it didn't amount to more than a couple thousand dollars, but still, 
When Orr heard the news that he was being investigated for embezzlement, he became very irate. He contacted the prosecutor and was like, how dare you accuse me of being a thief? Call me an arsonist. Call me a murderer. Call me a fugly ass son of a bitch. But don't you dare call me a thief? Cabral could have started laughing. And as he sat there, meticulously piecing together a capital murder case against Orr, and he was worried about being labeled a thief, he went ahead and assured Orr that he was not going to be filing theft charges against him, he promised. John Orr's time in prison on Terminal Island wasn't all that bad. This was a federal prison, so it was much better than state prisons. I don't know this for a fact. This is just what's been said. This place didn't have walls, but rather chain link fences with barbed wire. So prisoners could actually see the ocean. They could see people going by on boats, ships coming and going. I don't know if anyone listening has ever been to Terminal Island. My parents and I used to go there when I was really young because we'd go to the PX. There had been a naval shipyard there, but that's been closed for almost 25 years now. I liked going because we'd drive over this really big bridge and it was a really cool thing to go across it when we would go to Terminal Island. Anyway, Orr didn't like hanging out with other prisoners, which doesn't surprise me. He thought everyone was kind of gross, that people were messy, most of them smoked, and there always seemed to be a bunch of people who were always sick with some kind of ailment. Or refused to eat anything from the chow hall if he could avoid it, so he bought canned foods instead if he had the money. He was assigned to a job in the prison library, and he just bided his time while he waited for his appeals to be ruled on. Meanwhile, back to the investigation into Orr. Steve Patterson, he was that Burbank arson investigator who had been called to the Warner Brothers fire and ended up reaching out to Orr for assistance. And Orr just happened to be around the corner having dinner with a friend. So yeah, Patterson, he was on this new task force investigating Orr for his next trial. And he was given the duty of interviewing the many women in Orr's life. One woman that he talked to said right at the start that she had no doubt that Orr was the arsonist. In her time with him, she saw a very strange, dark side to his personality. He would regularly hit on all of her girlfriends, which she didn't take too kindly to. She also said that Orr had unusual sexual proclivities. He was aggressive and liked to assert control. One time, he became extremely violent during sex. He covered her face with a pillow. He reached for his handgun and pointed it directly into the pillow, which was over her face, and he told her he was going to effing blow her head off. Patterson recognized this scenario. Aaron Style did the same exact thing to one of his girlfriends in Orr's manuscript. Patterson recalled a passage in his manuscript where he wrote that Stiles had a crush on one of the department's emergency dispatch operators. So he poked around to see if there were any dispatchers that dated Orr, and it turns out he did. This woman started off by saying that when they began dating, he was very nice and polite, but eventually it got weird, surprise, surprise, 
when Orr insisted that they act out some rape fantasies. He especially liked literally ripping her clothes off of her, and it eventually had gotten to a point where she just didn't want to do this anymore. He was well on his way to destroying her entire wardrobe. Before Patterson ended this interview, she shared one last thing with him. There was an occasion when Orr offered to set her car on fire so that she could file an insurance claim. And she told him, no, I'm good. Patterson talked to another woman who was a fellow arson investigator. And this woman had become very serious about her relationship with him and thought he might have even been the one. But eventually she too saw a different side of Orr and she quickly fell out of love with him. The last straw was when they were having sex and he handcuffed her to the bed and left. I have no idea how long he left this woman there for, but yeah, she was pretty much done with him after that. He had also pointed his handgun in her face and threatened to shoot her too. Patterson also found similar storylines in Orr's manuscript, where Aaron Stiles acts out rape fantasies and handcuffs his girlfriends to the bed. The last girlfriend Orr had before he was arrested, and yes, while this dickweed was married to Wanda, he was dating a woman named Chris. Aaron Stiles had a girlfriend named Chris also, but Stiles was also very interested in a young woman named Trish. In fact, both Stiles the arsonist and Langtree the arson investigator were interested in the same woman, who was still a teenager in Orr's manuscript. Stiles met her at a 7-Eleven convenience store while he was attempting to set a fire. He became so preoccupied with this young woman Trish while he was setting that fire, or trying to set that fire, every time he thought of her, he thought of fire. When he longs for Trish, he longs for fire. They became entangled in Orr's mind and in his fantasies. Remember, John Orr once had a part-time job at a 7-Eleven where he mastered spotting shoplifters. In the manuscript, Orr's character develops an obsession over Trish, but when he tries to make a move or a romantic overture, whatever you want to call it, she flat out rejects him, so he decides to rape her. Aaron Stiles began stalking Trish, unbeknownst to her. He found out where she lived, and he would sit in his car parked outside her apartment. When the time seemed right, Stiles would start a fire, which would cause him to become very sexually aroused. And then when Trish would hear all the commotion about the fire, she went to go see what it was. Stiles would watch her until she went back into her apartment, and then he would go and knock on her door. When she opened it, he shoved his gun in her face and ordered her back inside. He became violent. He sat on top of her with the gun pointed in her face, telling her that he was going to shoot her in the head. He begins ripping her clothing off. He turns her over, binds her hands, and just as he's about to rape her, he's unable to achieve an erection. So this enrages Aaron Stiles, and he begins slapping this woman repeatedly. Then he binds her ankles and proceeds to drag her across the floor and into the kitchen, where he secures her to a water pipe. Then he goes into Trisha's living room and lights an incendiary device and puts it in the cushions of her couch. This gives Stiles the erection that he needs to carry out the sexual assault, but from my understanding, he ejaculates prematurely, so 
I don't know if he actually carried out the sexual assault in the manuscript. And then he just leaves in time before the fire starts. But she ends up surviving because an open window in her apartment pulls the fire in that direction. Someone sees the fire and calls 911. So as Patterson is reading this, after talking to some of the women who were involved with Orr, he is beginning to realize the depths of just how evil this man is. When Patterson shared some of what he learned and some of the theories that he was developing about John Orr, everyone kind of looked confused, and then they thought it was funny. They were trying to link Orr to hundreds of fires. They really didn't have time to entertain the idea that Orr could only be sexually aroused by setting fires. The only love interest that John Orr had that he didn't try any of his violent sexual fantasies with was the one who was a police officer. She was the one who had all the power in his eyes. She was the one that had the gun and the handcuffs. Even though his fellow task force members didn't see the link between the sex and the fire, Patterson held on to his theory. He was fairly certain that somewhere in there, they would find their motive. By 1994, the task force had kicked their investigation into high gear. They pretty much had settled on which fires they were going to indict John Orr on, the most important one being the Oles Home Center fire, which, of course, would bring about an indictment of four counts of capital murder. Also, they were going to charge him with the College Hills fires, the Warner Brothers Studios fire, and the Brush fire they named the Hildale fire in the city of La Cañada, and the St. Augustine fire in the city of Glendale. But they needed to hurry up if they wanted to get those last two indictments in because the statute of limitations was set to expire that November of 94. Arson investigator Steve Patterson was pretty bogged down and overwhelmed with the quadruple murder, and he really needed the help from homicide detectives. But Patterson got the sense that cops didn't really work well with firefighters turned amateur sleuths. What's worse was the idea that Steve Patterson had theorized that the motive behind the fires was an uncontrollable sexual urge, violent sexual urges, that Orr needed the fires in order to get off. It was laughable to the police. But anyway, there's an entire chapter in Fire Lover entitled Mary Duggan. Patterson had asked the Burbank police if they had any unsolved murders going back about a decade because he was chasing down the theory about Orr being a violent sexual predator. And he was actually told about one unsolved murder of a beautiful 22-year-old woman named Mary Duggan who was murdered in 1986. Patterson became really sidetracked with looking into the possibility that Orr may have had something to do with her death Mary had been bound, raped, and suffocated. But dreamers, before I get too deep into this side story, I went and looked it up first because this book is a little bit older, and it wasn't John Orr. In fact, Mary's murder wasn't solved until 2019, thanks once again to genealogy and a match that was made to a 64-year-old man named Horace Van Valtz. Investigators linked him to two murders, Selena Keogh in 1981 and Mary Duggan in 1986. I'm glad those murders were finally solved nearly four decades after the fact, but I didn't really quite see why Patterson began looking so deeply into rapes and murders. 
I realize that Orr had those sorts of fantasies or whatever. I really don't like thinking about it too much. But he had already spoken to several women who had been with Orr. And if I'm being honest, personally, I think John Orr was too much of a coward to pull off an actual rape and a murder. And at the same time, he's too full of himself to go around raping and killing women. His thing was fire. And remember in his manuscript, he wrote about Aaron Stiles attempting to rape the woman that he had met at a 7-Eleven. But when it came time for him to actually do it, he couldn't get an erection. I think there's a lot to be said about that and how it pertains to Orr himself. He may have tried to rape somebody and experienced in real life what Aaron Stiles had been experiencing in his manuscript. At the same time that Patterson was chasing things down that Orr had written in this manuscript because he felt as though it was based on things that he did in real life. And that's the reason why he began looking into Mary Duggan. And this is why police snickered at him. But Patterson spent a great deal of time investigating Mary's case, but he had absolutely no support from any of his colleagues, both cops and firefighters. They told him, look, we're building a capital murder case against the guy. We need to focus on that, and that will get him in the end. Patterson needed to attend to some other things for the task force, so he went ahead and left Mary Duggan's case alone for the time being. It would get brought up later on in Wamba's book, but I'm not going to discuss it anymore because the bottom line is Orr didn't do it. The suspect was apprehended just in 2019, so we're just going to leave it at that. Patterson went to speak to one of Orr's uncles. This particular uncle owned and operated his own business that was located relatively close to some of the brush fires that Orr was going on trial for. Patterson and Orr's uncle had a short, cordial conversation, but as soon as Patterson left, the uncle jumped on the phone to call his wife. His wife, in turn, jumped on the phone and called the chief of the Glendale Fire Department, and then the chief of the fire department jumped on the phone and called up Patterson and told him to leave John Orr's family the hell alone. And this all goes back to there being those who simply refused to believe that Orr was an arsonist, and if they believe that, and stood by and watched while Orr was getting prosecuted left and right, they were going to be protective and tight-lipped. After all, if an innocent man like the very well-respected Captain John Orr can be convicted, then any one of them could be convicted. Even to this day, there are those who still believe Orr was railroaded. Patterson was getting frustrated with all of the resistance that he was being met with everywhere that he turned. It was very exasperating trying to build this case against Orr. But he wasn't going to leave Orr's family alone. He couldn't. He had to speak to anybody that he could find. He found Orr's first wife and the two daughters that they had together living down in Orange County. After doing some poking around, he found out that the same day that Orr drove down there to see his daughters around the holidays in 1990, a thrifty drugstore was hit by an arson fire. This was the third thrifties that Patterson knew of. Two more arson fires had been set at thrifties in the March 1991 spree. So Patterson paid a visit to the corporate offices of Thrifty Drugs, which was in Hollywood. The administrative assistant who greeted Patterson when he got there, it turned out that she was actually acquainted with John Orr. And when I say acquainted, I mean they previously had a sexual relationship. Unfortunately for us, Patterson still continued to probe into the Mary Duggan case, and he spent way more time than he should have 
trying to connect Aura to that murder. But we're all looking at this in hindsight. So, I mean, he, he had a hunch and he was going with it, but ultimately he was wrong. Prosecutor Mike Cabral got his 25-count indictment of Orr to the grand jury just under the wire, one day before the statute of limitations was set to expire on the brush fires. There were the four counts of murder, plus one count of arson at the Ole's Home Center fire, one count of arson at Warner Brothers, three counts of arson in Glendale where homes were lost, three counts of arson for brush fires in La Cunada, three counts of arson at another location in Glendale, and 16 counts of arson for the College Hills fire. That afternoon, as Orr sat in his cell listening to his little radio, the announcer stated that they had breaking news after the commercials. A local fire captain had been indicted on multiple charges of murder. John Orr pretty much shut down. He stopped listening to the radio. He refused to look at the TV. He spoke to his wife, Wanda, for a little bit. His attorney, Peter Giannini, he spoke to reporters and said that Orr was stunned and devastated. Giannini reached out to Wanda also, and he told her that he would be able to continue working as Orr's defense attorney, and she would not be required to pay him, which he knew she wouldn't be able to do, because the court would be able to appoint him, and the state of California would pick up the tab. Orr agreed to continue working with Giannini too, but he was really, really upset. He was just settling in when it came to prisons. The one he was in on Terminal Island was comfortable. It had that beautiful ocean view. He hoped and prayed that he would be able to stay there until the trial, but that wasn't going to happen. Within days of the indictment, the prosecutor had Orr transferred to the L.A. County Jail. He was going to have to be going to the old jail, which is where they kept the high-profile prisoners, such as celebrities, former cops, that sort of thing. He was up there with O.J. Simpson, and that was pretty much the highlight of Orr's day, was to listen to O.J. preach about the Lord and whatnot. Orr was only allowed to use the phone once every other day for 30 minutes, and he got to exercise outside on the roof once a week. He begged his attorney to get his trial going as soon as possible. If he had to be in the county jail for very much longer, he threatened to commit suicide. However, when O.J. Simpson was acquitted of murder on October 3rd, 1995, his absence from that wing of the county jail opened up at least one perk for the other inmates being kept in that unit also. They got to exercise on the roof twice a week instead of just once. But Orr, he wasn't exactly treated all that well. But then again, I can't say if this sort of stuff happens to all the other high-profile inmates or if he was just targeted by the corrections officer because he was a former firefighter. But Orr submitted a written complaint to the jail that the corrections officer stole his girly magazines. And I don't even think they're allowed to have those to begin with. Anyway, and be forewarned, this could be triggering to your senses. But Orr was strip searched, placed in handcuffs, I hope he wasn't placed in handcuffs naked because that would just be another level of blech. And he was made to stand by while the officers tossed up his cell and made off with his smutty magazines. Orr carried with him this really huge sense of entitlement and it was a trait that he exhibited ever since he served in the Air Force. 
Even when he got to federal prison, he was still pretty comfortable and content considering his circumstances. But when he got to the county jail and was facing four murder charges, all of that fell away. His situation and his living conditions had taken a turn for the worse and or was miserable. The fact that he had actually filed a written complaint about his dirty magazines demonstrates how entitled he continued to believe that he was. He was being stripped and cuffed and made to watch his cell get turned upside down. And it was yet another humiliation to him, pulled off by law enforcement, essentially, because it's the sheriff's department that have the corrections officers in the jails. If or ever thought he deserved the celebrity treatment because of his former prominence in the firefighting community, he was sorely mistaken. County jail was a big, huge reality check. We know that inmates can be pretty creative and resourceful. Skills they develop with all the free time that they have, right? Well, in Fire Lover, Wamba wrote about Orr's next cell neighbor, a Vietnamese guy accused of being a drug trafficker. So apparently this guy was able to use the light fixture in his cell to boil water, which was quite valuable. In exchange for hot water, Orr would write letters for the Vietnamese guy. It provided somewhat of a distraction from being in the county jail and a distraction from the fact that a few months after he arrived there, his wife Wanda finally pulled her head out of her ass and divorced this guy. But for some reason, his girlfriend, with whom he had a relationship throughout much of his marriage to Wanda, maintained her head up her ass and stuck by him. A second attorney was appointed to Orr's case in early 1997. Yeah, the years here are going by because Orr's case was very complicated and it was a death penalty case, so it was moving pretty slow. For the prosecutor, Mike Cabral, he knew it wasn't going to be easy to prove his case since the Oles fire had initially been ruled an accident. So Orr was assigned a second defense attorney, a gentleman by the name of Ed Rucker. He was a little bit older and had experience defending death penalty cases. He was pretty confident that he would be able to establish reasonable doubt as to whether or not the fire was an accident or an arson. So Rucker decided to talk to Cabral about the possibility of a plea deal. The fact of the matter was that the prosecutor didn't care if Orr went to death row or not. The only thing he wanted to be sure of was that Orr would never walk free again. So Rucker and Cabral discussed the possibility of coming to a plea agreement. If Orr pleads guilty, then the prosecutor takes the death penalty off the table and Orr would be made to admit in open court to every single crime he ever committed, every arson that he was responsible for. And another catch to this plea deal was that because he was pleading didn't necessarily mean that Orr could not be prosecuted in the future for any other crimes that may come along. So even if he did plead guilty again, he could still be charged with any other crimes that he would be linked to in the future. When Rucker came and talked to Orr about it, and this is probably no surprise to any of you, Orr flat out refused. There was no way that he was going to plead guilty. He adamantly maintained his innocence. He was innocent of the crimes that he's been convicted of, and he's innocent of the crimes that they wanted to convict him of. Now, there was a part of his new defense attorney, Ed Rucker, that thought maybe Orr did not commit the Oles fire crime, but would he be able to convince a jury of that? 
The most difficult hurdle was going to be the fact that Orr had pleaded guilty to that builder's emporium arson. The prosecutor would point to that fire as being exactly the same kind of store with exactly the same kind of fire that happened at Ole's, and this was proof that both fires had been set by the same arsonist, and that arsonist was John Orr. So with Orr's refusal to accept the plea, his two attorneys decided to focus on their defense. And with that, they also decided to not bother with Orr unless they really, really needed to. Peter Giannini ignored Orr's phone calls, and before long, Orr developed an intense hatred towards him, though he was still okay with Rucker. They talked on the phone on occasion, but Rucker stopped visiting Orr in jail altogether. And after a series of delays, the court finally set a trial date, and this one would be set in stone. May 6, 1998. Right off the bat, Orr was worried. Among some of the things the judge said to the jury before the trial began, he told them that they were going to hear evidence that showed the defendant had committed crimes other than the ones that he was currently on trial for. This evidence wasn't meant to be used to determine that the defendant is a bad person or that he is the one likely to have committed the crimes. The evidence was for the jury to determine if there was a pattern a method or some characteristics in those past crimes that are similar to the characteristics of these crimes that he is currently being charged with. If there is evidence that the defendant did set those fires, the jury is not to jump to the conclusion that he must have set the fires that he's currently on trial for. The evidence of those fires can be taken into consideration if they see a uniqueness in them that helps the jury to believe that he is the same person that set those fires that he's being charged with. The jury was a good mix of people with a variety of racial backgrounds, men, women, a variety of ages. But one of the jurors was a retired deputy sheriff, and another one was an attorney who used to be a prosecutor. Orr's defense attorney thought that these two jurors in particular would be fair when weighing the evidence and they would be helpful to the others if they encountered any confusing legal issues along the way. But John Orr could not disagree more. He was pissed off that they had a former member of law enforcement and a former prosecutor on his jury. Based on Orr's history, this isn't surprising at all that he would not want those two on his jury. We already know that he hates cops, and over the last several years, he's probably grown a strong hatred towards prosecutors as well. The prosecution's opening statement hit hard right out of the gate. He named the four victims of the Ole's Home Center fire of October 10, 1984. 26-year-old Carolyn Krauss, 17-year-old Jimmy Satina, 55-year-old Ada Deal, and her two-year-old grandson Matthew Tridel. They perished almost 14 years ago in a violent fire set by serial arsonist John Leonard Orr. He managed to make this fire even more devastating because even though the fire station was only two blocks away from Ole's, it was a very fast-moving fire. Highly combustible materials specifically chosen by the arsonist to be set on fire, knowing it would feed the flames as any accelerant would. It was meant to maximize the destruction. Or then set two other fires at nearby grocery stores meant to be diversions, taking up valuable resources that were desperately needed at Ole's home center. 125 firefighters fought the inferno for hours 
but it wasn't enough to save the four trapped inside. And within minutes of the first engines arriving to begin fighting the fire, there was John Orr himself, standing right there with a camera, asking if it was okay if he took some pics. 24 hours later, John Orr had a conversation with a woman named Karen Krausberry. She was the sister-in-law of victim Carolyn Kraus. And John Orr had told her the fire was an arson and that it was started with the use of a delayed incendiary device left to burn slowly in a display of products made out of polyurethane foam. The jury would be shown evidence from an arson not included in the charges that the defendant was facing. It was an arson at a store called Craftmart in Bakersfield, where his fingerprint was found on a delayed incendiary device. They would be told of yet another fire where the same incendiary device was used to set other fires, including another hardware store identical to the one that took these four lives. And they would be told that John Leonard Orr admitted in a sworn statement that he was the one who placed those incendiary devices at every one of those locations. These were the guilty pleas that were coming back to haunt Orr. He always insisted that he was innocent, but those guilty pleas were so damaging to the charges that he was now facing. All of those fires would show to the jury that the fire at Oli's was a part of this familiar series of arsons. There was this modus operandi. There was a unique incendiary device at every single fire. This was beyond coincidence. The prosecution also let the jury know that they were only charging Orr with the other counts, the ones involving the College Hills brush fires. There were only 16 counts out of a possible 66 counts. There were 66 houses that were either destroyed or damaged, but 16 of them, the ones that he was being charged with, were the ones that completely burned all the way down to the ground. The defense strategy was to have Ed Rucker focus on the Ole's fire, while Peter Giannini focused on everything else. They really wanted to make it as simple as possible for the jury because the case had so many layers. So Rucker tried to be clear. Whenever he is speaking, he is only discussing the fire at the Ole's home center and nothing else. He also wanted the jury to understand that the Ole's fire was beyond tragic. But it is the only fire of all the ones in the charging documents that make this a death penalty case. If they do not find the defendant responsible for the Ole's fire, then it doesn't matter what they decide when it comes to all the other fires. This will no longer be a death penalty case. And that they intended to prove that John Orr is not responsible for that fire at Ole's because it was not an arson. Yes, John Orr has admitted to setting fires something to be very ashamed of. He admitted in federal court to setting a series of fires and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. But you have to make a promise to this court that you must keep, otherwise the justice system will fail, the jury was told. You will be shown evidence that the fire at Ole's was an accident. There was a civil lawsuit filed by the families of the victims, so this fire has been through the court system. And not one person came forward and testified that the Ole's fire was arson. They agreed in court that it was an accident caused by faulty electrical wiring in the attic of the building. Nobody saw John Orr inside Ole's the evening of the fire. Orr was at another location discussing another fire when the one at Ole's broke out. John Orr, before all of this, was an incredibly respected arson investigator. 
His colleagues had faith in his work and held him in very high regard. He faced justice for the fires he started, and we believe you will not find him responsible for the fires he is now being prosecuted for. Giannini tried to downplay the notion that the incendiary device was a signature item unique to one arsonist, but rather it was quite common and used all the time. Eyewitnesses gave a wide range of descriptions of people they saw in the stores just prior to the fires breaking out. None of them matched Orr's general description. Giannini also told the jury that they were going to learn that Orr is the author of a book that he wrote, that they are going to be told that the book reads more like a journal that chronicles Orr's own criminal activities. But Orr was an arson investigator. Of course he uses his experiences as an investigator while writing a book. Just because some of the fires he investigated are in the book does not mean that he set those fires. He was only privy to the information that came out as a part of his work as an investigator, including the Oli's fire. Among the witnesses that testified at Orr's trial were Billy Deal, husband of Ada Deal, grandfather of victim Matthew Tridle. He broke down into tears as he recalled that evening almost 14 years earlier. Many in the courtroom cried with him. He told the court how they went their separate ways inside the store, how they were supposed to treat Matthew to an ice cream at Baskin and Robbins afterwards, how they never got to have that ice cream, and how he waited in the parking lot for almost 24 hours hoping that the two of them would emerge from the building, how he never saw his wife and grandson again until he was tasked with identifying their bodies. That ice cream testimony was important to the defense, because Orr wrote about it in his manuscript. He wrote that Matthew was begging his grandparents for a mint chocolate chip ice cream. If Matthew and his grandparents actually had this conversation in real life, that would mean that Orr was present and overheard them discussing this. The only way Orr would have been able to overhear them is if he was near them in the parking lot or inside the store. Billy Deal could not recall exactly where they were when they talked about going to Baskin-Robbins. It could have been in their car. It could have been in the parking lot. He just couldn't remember. Jim Obdom testified. He was the last person to see Ada and Matthew inside Oli's. He made it out of the building just in time, but sustained second and third degree burns to his head and arms. He told the jury how he attempted to help Ada and Matthew through the darkness of all the smoke that filled the store, how he prayed for them, how he barely made it out, and how his own flesh was falling from his burnt arm. Another employee, Anthony Colantuano, told the court how the evening was winding down for him and fellow employees, Carolyn and Jimmy, and how he looked for them, but was unable to find them. He described how incredibly fast the fire swept through the building, how a wall of flames was just barreling towards him. The chief of the South Pasadena Fire Department testified, he described arriving at Oli's and seeing John Orr there shortly afterwards and that he wanted to take pictures, that it was normal for arson investigators from nearby jurisdictions to show up at fires, and that one at Oli's, there were investigators from all over, including the city, state, and federal levels. It was determined that the point of origin was in the attic, that the investigators determined that it was a low smoldering fire that occurred over a period of time in the attic that it was his own opinion that the fire broke out in the attic and fell through the ceiling eventually, and they determined the fire to be an accident. 
The jury was told about the diversionary fire set at Vaughn Supermarket by the arson investigator who evaluated the scene, that it was just a short distance away from Oli's and it broke out just several minutes after the Oli's fire had started. The investigator was told by John Orr that the fire in his store was arson, that they used a cigarette left to burn slowly. Orr also told him about the bags of chips that they came in, along with the oils that the chips are cooked in, and how that caused the fire to grow quickly. It was the first he had ever heard of a fire being fueled by chips, and he has not heard of any more chip fires since. The jury also learned about the second diversionary fire at the Albertsons grocery store, also a short distance away from Oli's, also having started not too long after the Vaughn's fire, also in the chip display, also with a delayed incendiary device. The defense attempted to construct a timeline to show that it would have been impossible for Orr to set all those fires and still show up at all of them as an investigator. And Dreamers, you and I both know that he had the time. He could have had the time because he used delayed incendiary devices. And we know how crazy fast John Orr drives, too. Los Angeles Fire Department firefighter Dennis Foote testified that he spoke to John Orr the morning after the Ole's fire. Foote was compiling information about a cluster of fires in the Los Angeles and surrounding areas for four years by then, all of them in retail stores, all of them occurring in the afternoon or evening. He told the court that he had investigated a fire at Builders Emporium, a store very similar to Ole's, and that the fire had been started in the display of plastic foam items, which was similar to other fires that he had looked at. This was important because Orr did plead guilty to that very fire. Karen Krause, sister-in-law to victim Carolyn Krause, also a community service officer with the Glendale Police Department, testified. She knew Orr since they both worked for the city. She told the court how Orr expressed his disappointment that the Oli's fire was ruled an accident, that it needed to be investigated further. He told her that there were several fires in the area that had been started in stores with displays of combustible plastic items and that he believed the Ole's fire was started in the same manner as those and how he also told her that there should have been a fire investigator at the autopsies of all the victims to test for particles that would have been given off by the flammable items. They could have looked for these particles and gases in their lungs to prove that plastic materials were indeed burning. Following her testimony, the prosecutor called a parade of expert witnesses who all disputed the official finding that the Ole's fire was an accident, that this was not merely an electrical fire. For one, if the fire had started in the attic, a flashover would have been in the attic, but it wasn't. It was on the ground floor. The bottom line was, is that the prosecution needed to prove once and for all if the fire had started in the attic and dropped down, or if the fire started on the sales floor and climbed up. To do that, they were going to call another parade of witnesses, all of them arson investigators. The testimony was very long and drawn out, very technical, and it really went over most people's heads. But the prosecutor was able to pick apart the investigation, that the conclusion that this was an accident was reached without interviewing any of the employees of the store, without finding out where the combustible polyurethane products were kept inside the store, and that they decided on this having been an accident that started in the attic, even though the attic had been completely wiped out by the fire. 
and there was no evidence left to prove definitively that this was an electrical fire. And there was a fact that there were two other fires in close proximity to Ole's home center, and they were set in very short order, one right after the other. Both of those were arson, and the insinuation being that didn't that seem suspicious? Three fires practically all at the same time within blocks of each other? A couple of the investigators at Ole's were made aware of the other fires, but those were in grocery stores and potato chip displays, and they didn't take it into consideration because they could not definitively rule out the Ole's fire as having been an accident. However, many of the investigators were never told about the other two fires, not by anyone, and in particular not by John Orr, who had been called to investigate both of those fires. There was never any discussion that those fires may have been used to divert attention away from Ole's. Nobody brought up the fact that there were similar fires because nobody brought up the fire at the Builder's Emporium, which Orr pled guilty to. One investigator was made to admit that if he knew the location of the polyurethane products in Ole's and that the point of origin had come from there, he was asked if that would have made a difference in the determination that it was an accident, and he said yes. It may have changed his opinion because they did have a whole series of fires that were started in stores that had those types of flammable materials started with delay incendiary devices. But nobody, none of the dozens of arson investigators at the Ole's fire scene ever brought up other retail store fires. They quickly reached the conclusion that it was an accident and no other investigators spoke up to dispute that finding. Nobody had taken the time to see if the Ole's fire matched the arsonist's M.O. at countless other retail building fires that had plagued the Southland. By and large, none of the investigators and officials responsible for ruling the fire an accident was willing to say that they made a mistake. They were unwilling to assist in the prosecution of their former colleague, John Orr. The testimony eventually shifted over to the College Hills fires. And I've gone over those fires and I talked about it in great detail about the different people who spotted John Orr all over the place as those fires kept cropping up. He was appearing out of nowhere. He almost seemed to be able to teleport from one place to another. And the testimony from witnesses was all about that. How everyone spotted Orr at a variety of locations, even when the locations of those fires weren't even being broadcast over the radio even when wrong directions were given, yet somehow Orr managed to be there. Orr's former friend and investigative partner for a time, Don Yeager, was called to testify. When it came to the College Hills fires, he told the court that he was under the impression that Orr wanted little to no investigation to be conducted. When Yeager wanted to interview witnesses, Orr told him that he turned that responsibility over to the police, which is something they never did when investigating arsons. Later on, he found out that the police hadn't interviewed anyone, nor were they ever told by anyone to do so. It felt like Orr was purposely obstructing the investigation into the College Hills fires. This was the worst fire Glendale had ever experienced, and Orr did nothing to look into it and tried to stop Yeager from looking into it too. Orr was busy looking at statistics, examining the homes to record how they were actually burned, gathering statistical information rather than trying to figure out how the fire started. Yeager told the court that he was frustrated and complained about Orr to their supervisor about his refusal to work the fire investigation. 
Then the court was told that John Orr never issued a DR number to the College Hills fires, which is how the crime would have been categorized and tracked pretty much forever. This had been Glendale's most disastrous fire, one that Orr ruled an arson, but he never assigned it an official number that could be referenced. It was something that absolutely should have been done, no exceptions. The only time that DR numbers might not be assigned to a case is if it was some kid that had set a trash can on fire. The man who made the initial connection to the arson fires having been likely set by someone who worked as a firefighter, Captain Marvin Casey, he was called to testify. He told the court how he found the incendiary device at the Craft Mart store in Bakersfield and eventually discovered a latent print on the piece of yellow lined paper. It wasn't lost on anybody how, in a roundabout way, the fingerprint screw up kind of helped the cases against John Orr in the long run. And to remind you, the fingerprint screw-up was when Casey had theorized the arsonist was amongst those who attended the seminar in Fresno in 1987, as well as the symposium in San Luis Obispo in 1989, because during both of those events, there were a series of fires set along the way. Casey narrowed down a list of potential suspects to 10. These were the only 10 individuals who attended both events, and John Orr was one of them. So he was told, okay, they could pull their fingerprint cards to see if any of them matched the latent print that he lifted. The ATF expert failed to make the match at that time. If they had, Orr would have been arrested more than two years earlier, and then there would have never been the College Hills fires. There never would have been the spree of 19 fires in the Los Angeles area, and the Ole's Home Center fire would have stayed rolled an accident. If they had made that match back then, or would have undoubtedly been back on the streets by 2002. It was kind of an epic fail to have overlooked or as a match to the print, but the task force was, in a way, grateful for it because it was potentially going to get or off the streets for good. Some of the most damning testimony came from a witness who saw a pair of pictures mounted on a corkboard in Orr's office at the fire station. The first picture was of a house with overgrown brush around the property. The second picture was of that same house on fire. John Orr had the pictures side by side, sort of like a before and after. So the insinuation was from back when Orr patrolled and issued citations to homeowners who needed to have dry brush removed from around their property that it was kind of like a warning as to what can happen to your home if you ignore John Orr's orders to clear the brush. Because when you think about it, dreamers, what are the chances of Orr having taken a photo of a house that was in violation and then coming back later to take a picture of that same house consumed in flames? Orr probably sat at his stupid little desk staring at those side-by-side pictures just getting all aroused, you know, because that was his thing, right? Ugh. Anyway, the jury was told of the many acts of arson for which Orr was not being charged with and how many of them matched up to the fires Orr had been charged and convicted of. And most incriminating of all was the signature incendiary device. 
they were told of a second fire at a different Oli's a couple months after the fatal one and how the signature incendiary device was found there too. The jury was told how Orr wrote in his manuscript that he needed to set an identical hardware store on fire because the idiot cops didn't give him credit for the destruction that he caused at the first one in South Pasadena. The jury was also told of all the materials to construct that signature device that were found in Orr's briefcase, which included two packs of cigarettes, matches, rubber bands, and a pad of yellow paper that was found in his car. And by the way, let's not forget that John Orr was not a smoker, so he would have no other reason to carry around cigarettes except for the fact that he was the arsonist. The defense called witnesses that had investigated the fire at Oli's and determined that the fire started in the attic and was an accident. The prosecutor pointed out that several employees inside the store at the time said that the fire originated on the sales floor in an aisle towards the rear of the store. But the investigators continued to insist that it could have been a drop-down fire from the attic. They also testified that they were not aware of the two fires in the potato chip aisles of two different grocery stores very close to Oli's that occurred around the same time that same evening. They weren't told that both of those fires were found to have been started with an incendiary device and admitted it would have been almost unheard of for three businesses that were open to catch fire all at the same time and that yes, there was a high probability that they were looking at a serial arsonist and that most likely all three fires would have been related. The jury got long, boring lessons from the defense witnesses on fire behavior, fire growth, plastic combustibility, fire safe building design, measuring smoke, polyurethane foam, types of foam, category, subcategories, flexibility, rigidity, development of foam fire inhibitors, backdraft. The experts were getting into words that people had no idea what they were, words that the court reporter didn't even know how to spell. With it all coming down to one thing, the fire at Oli's appeared to be consistent with having started in the attic, according to the defense team witnesses. The testimony had been so long, boring, and complicated, the prosecution had no questions for any of them. Orr's last partner, Joe Lopez, testified on his behalf he told the jury that Orr did use the materials he had in his briefcase to construct delay incendiary devices for training purposes. When he was cross-examined, the jury was told about the badge that Orr had with a removable emblem that could be changed from fire department to police. Did he know that Orr had this item? He said that he did. Did he know that it was illegal for Orr to go around presenting himself as a police officer? He said that he was aware of that too. The jury had been told that Orr had discovered the tracking device that the task force had placed on his car, but did nothing to inquire about it or ask any of his supervisors what was going on. Why was he being tracked? Why was he under superstition? Lopez was asked if Orr told him about the tracking device. He said that Orr had not told him. The idea here being that an innocent person would have raised hell if they had discovered they were being surveilled by their own colleagues. One of Orr's girlfriends, named Chris, was also called to the stand, and it was important because it was her daughter's parent-teacher conference that brought Orr out to Burbank the day of the Warner Brothers studio fire. And it was meant to be an alibi for him 
for the time that he was supposedly setting the fires there. It was established that Orr had been having a years-long affair with Chris, all the while being married to Wanda, and the purpose of that was to not only establish Orr as a serial arsonist, but also a serial philanderer, and to some jurors that might even be worse than being a pyromaniac. Prosecutor Mike Cabral finally got to one of the more important aspects of the case, the fire at Cal's hardware store, as written in John Orr's manuscript, Points of Origin. He went ahead and read Chapter 1 to the jury. Remember, they know all the details about the fire at Ole's. Fire Lover has the entire first chapter transcribed in it. I will try to narrow it down to the most significant parts to share with you here. The hardware business prospered in the small community of South Pasadena. Madeline Paulson went there at least twice a week to shop. Tonight, she was babysitting her three-year-old grandson, Matthew. He wasn't sleepy when she took him to the Baskin-Robbins ice cream store next door to Cal's. While standing in the parking lot sharing a chocolate mint cone, she decided to entertain Matthew by walking through Cal's. In less than six minutes, both Madeline and Matthew would be dead. As she rounded the corner, she almost ran into a man walking with his hands in his pockets. In Dreamers, this would be the arsonist, Aaron Stiles. Both were startled as she saw that they wouldn't collide. She heard his breath suck in, and he mumbled his apologies as he continued on. She recovered quickly, too, and walked towards the back of the store. Minutes later, she heard a shrill, whistling noise. She then heard excited talking and the word fire. She started towards the sound, realizing now it was a smoke detector. She saw a slight haze at the ceiling level. Her heart raced as she rounded the corner. She saw that the smoke was now swirling around the ceiling like a whirlwind. The fire originating in polyurethane cushions raced to the ceiling within 45 seconds. 1,000 degree temperatures were being pushed towards the annex door opening. The annex opening was protected by a metal-clad door designed to close when a lightweight metal link melted from the fire and allowed the door to roll down its track, closing and preventing fire spread into the main store. The design was for fires happening after hours when no one was inside, not for hours when the store was occupied. It was a fatal design. Madeline held Matthew close to her and stopped briefly to look down the aisle where she saw the fire boiling out of the displays 50 feet away. She stared at the fire, not yet feeling the heat, fascinated yet terrified. The fire burned through a light fixture and shorted out all the lights in the annex, leaving Madeline, Matthew, one other man, and three employees in complete darkness. Quickly, the tremendous heat breached the attic above the fire and found a ready source of oxygen. The smoke, just above head level when the lights went out, now crashed down on the heads of Madeline and Matthew. Instinctively, they dropped down to the floor as they heard the black man's voice. She screamed back at him, and within seconds, he was at their side. Still in total darkness, the toxic smoke attacking their lungs, the three crawled. The smoke choking and thick, was stealing their oxygen quickly, causing disorientation. He held Madeline's hand as Matthew clung to her neck. She heard Matthew's sobs as well as her own. She now felt the heat and saw the flames in front of them. She screamed at the employee as he squeezed her hand tightly, 
continuing down the aisle toward the fire. He suddenly realized he was going the wrong way, turned back and reversed their direction. She felt herself losing her grip on Matthew, and his grip loosened from her neck and slipped down her body as they crawled. Unable to go any further, she felt the employee's hand drop hers. He continued on. The last thing she heard was a tremendous roar as a fire burned through the roof and vented outside. The smoke momentarily lifted, but was then replaced by solid fire as the contents of the annex exploded into flames. Their last breaths were of 800-degree heat that sealed their throats closed. When Madeline's body was found, she was on her back, with Matthew clinging to her ankles. The employee leading them was found face down five feet in front of Madeline, just 20 feet short of a fire escape door. One other employee had managed to escape and collapsed outside. Ironically, the other dead employee and customer were also found within 10 feet of Madeline. There was never a follow-up investigation. The fire was ineptly termed accidental. Aaron was so furious that he set a nearly identical fire in Hollywood at another hardware store. The investigating agency termed the fire arson, but no correlation was made to the Cal's fire. Aaron wanted the Cal's fire to be called an arson. He loved the inadvertent attention he derived from newspaper coverage and hated it when he wasn't properly recognized. The prosecutor set down the copy of the manuscript that he was holding. The juror's eyes were fixated on John Orr, and for a moment the entire courtroom was silent. The prosecutor finally spoke to the courtroom. The chapter of this book is The Ole's Fire. Every detail right down to the Baskin-Robbins ice cream shop. By the way, dreamers, all of the sexually explicit content in Orr's manuscript, there was a lot of it. It was all redacted. None of that was heard in court, and the jury wouldn't read any of it. Then he told the jury, Los Angeles County Sheriff Sergeant Jack Palmer assessed the scene in about an hour. With the four dead people still inside, he called the Ole's fire an accident without speaking to one single witness who was inside the building when the fire broke out. He talked to a couple of them later on, but he had already reached his conclusion. Speaking to witnesses who told him they saw the fire in the aisle, did not change his ruling. Every investigator after him and under him fell in line. Everyone said that they went with what the sergeant ruled. Everyone was effectively washing their hands of those four homicides. The evidence is clear. John Leonard Orr entered Ole's home center on October 10, 1984, a little after 7.30 p.m. He walked down the aisle towards the back, where they had a display of polyurethane products. He set his signature incendiary device on the display and left. Several minutes later, flames erupted. Fire quickly spread across the sales floor, eventually leading to the flashover that took the lives of four innocent people, Jimmy Satina, Carolyn Krauss, Ada Deal, and Matthew Tridel. Please find this defendant guilty, the prosecutor pleaded with the jury. And dreamers, let's not forget, in the years following the Ole's fire, the only person who regularly and consistently vocalized his complaints about the Ole's home center fire being ruled an accident 
was John Orr. He told anybody who would listen that the investigators were stupid. They did not know what they were doing. This was so obviously an arson. How could they rule this an accident? He carried on and on. But the ruling stood. Changing the ruling meant burdening themselves with four cold homicide cases and nobody was willing to even entertain that possibility. And it remained a thorn in Orr's side for years because he wanted the credit for it. But now, now that John Orr is standing trial for that very arson and four counts of murder, he suddenly wants everyone to stick by the original determination that it was an accident? Of course he does, because he was finally going to be made to face the very real consequence that he might just have to pay for these crimes with his own life. The only life that that coward ever cared about. Both the prosecution and the defense delivered lengthy, powerful closing arguments. For the defense, there were two messages being sent to the jury. That John Orr isn't this stupid to have attempted all these arson fires right under the noses of the people he worked alongside with. And the other message was, we know that John Orr is a despicable human being. We know that you don't like him. You may even hate him, but all of that is circumstantial evidence that doesn't definitively prove anything. So why don't you go ahead and convict him of the College Hills brush fires, kind of as a compromise, but find him not guilty of the Ole's Home Center fires. This has obviously turned into a desperate attempt to save John Orr's worthless life from death row. The jury deliberated for two weeks. On June 26, 1998, they announced that they had reached a verdict on all counts except for one. And no amount of deliberating was going to change that. So after the lunch break, the court reconvened and the verdicts were read to the court by the clerk. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, John Leonard Orr, guilty of the crime of first-degree murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187, a felony as charged in count one of the indictment. And it was the same for the other three counts. Three times over, he was found guilty with the special circumstance enhancement of this having been a case with multiple murders. Everything else or was convicted of all of the arsons, the College Hills fires, everything with the exception of the Warner Brothers Studios fire. The penalty phase of the trial would begin the following Tuesday, June 30th, 1998. John Orr was either going to be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, or he was going to be sentenced to death. Lots of people were given the opportunity to speak during the penalty phase of Orr's trial. Included were survivors of the fires that he had been convicted of setting, people who lost their homes, some who lost everything that they had in the world, even pets, people who escaped fires he set inside retail stores. Of course, there were the families of those who perished in the Ole's Home Center fire, little two-year-old Matthew's heartbroken parents some 14 years later, most of that time believing that he and his grandma died in a tragic accident, only to find that it was intentionally set by someone who was trusted with saving people from fires. Some spoke on behalf of John Orr, his two daughters, both of them beautiful young women having children of their own. The younger daughter spoke lovingly of her father. Even though her parents divorced when they were young, he was always there for them. 
and she was going to make sure that her own children know who their grandpa is. To her, he was always a hero, and his arrest devastated her, and she does not want to ever have to explain to her children why their grandpa was killed. She framed the death penalty as being more of a punishment for herself and her children. Orr's father took the stand. He was very old by this time. He shed tears as he talked about the possibility of his son being put to death and stated very clearly that he loves his son, he supports him, and he doesn't want to lose him. His first ex-wife said that Orr was a good provider and a good dad, and she didn't want her girls to lose him. But the prosecutor got the ex-wife to discuss Orr having walked out on her and the girls after six years of marriage, that he had left a note, he called a few days later, and that he left her destitute. She had no job and no money. She was forced to apply for public assistance, and that he remarried not too long after they divorced, and that he married and divorced, married and divorced, and married again. Orr's own mother testified on his behalf, as well as his older daughter. She went last, both of them asking for Orr to be sentenced to life in prison. The jury deliberated for three days, eventually sending a note to the judge that they were deadlocked and they did not feel any more deliberations would be useful. They were brought back into the courtroom and questioned one by one if they were sure that they were deadlocked. The judge asked what the split was, and they said eight to four for death. The judge declared a mistrial in the penalty phase. He thanked the jury for their service and finally dismissed them. They had served for a total of three months. On September 10, 1998, John Orr was given four life sentences without the possibility of parole, plus another 21 years for all the other fires that he was convicted of. In March of 2000, the appeals court made a ruling on Orr's case, which was affirmed. The defendant claimed that the brush fires were set with the intentions of only burning brush and that the homes that were destroyed were incidental to Orr's actual purpose, so his sentence should be modified. And it was, once Orr was finished serving his entire term of natural life, he would not have to serve the additional 21 years, but instead, he would only have to serve 12. Today, John Leonard Orr is 72 years old and is currently being housed at California State Prison in Sentinella, located in Imperial County, which is east of San Diego. And he will not be leaving until he is good and dead. And that brings this series, The Tale of the Firestarter, to a close, finally. Our next episode, which I'm still contemplating what to do, is going to be number 200. And it kind of feels like more than 200 because I've done a lot of bonuses as well, about 77 of them to be exact. And once we're finished with the Amber Hilberling case on Patreon, that's going to take us to 70 Patreon bonuses. So once you are all caught up and if you've listened to everything, that's about 347 episodes, bonuses, and Patreon exclusives all combined. And that's a pretty good catalog of stuff. 
especially for new listeners who, if they take a chance on the show and they like it, they have so much to listen to. And I really appreciate any and all of you who get out there on social media and recommend the show to people. Don't forget to follow California Dreaming on Facebook. Join our discussion group. Support us on Patreon if you have a dollar or two to spare each month. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. I want to thank you all so much for listening to this series. I know it has been long, but it's been probably one of the more comprehensive episodes out there. Got a lot of details in it, and I know there's a lot of you that appreciate that sort of stuff. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams.